0: man it's so good to be back um just to reintroduce myself i'm taylor intz i'm the pastor here at sojourn gallery and just we were just on family holiday and i missed the last couple sundays so really and missed y'all and just it wasn't i told some people beforehand it just wasn't the same worshiping elsewhere not with family and so we love y'all and we're glad to be back and i see some new faces and it's good to good to meet you and i look forward to talking with you afterwards um Okay. Well, we are in Job 22. We're going to be kind of bouncing around today. As Jeremiah said, we're in the middle of this series on Job. And the way that I broke, uh, built the series, I guess, is that we're mainly focusing on what happens to Job, because that's what the book's about. And we're mainly focusing on Job's cries to God. Because as I read through the book and tried to build out an eight-sermon series, I really felt like, I mean, Job's words are so substantial and um and meaty, and there's so much to be learned from them. And his his friends, by contrast, which we're gonna focus on today, I didn't I just didn't want to give as much focus to them because their their words are um they're just hollow. And and um I didn't want to I didn't wanna spend four, three or four sermons on hollow words. So we're gonna do that today. Haha. Um it, it, which it kind of led to a, it's a fun sort of light sermon, things not to say, things that God hates. It kind of led to a funny series of attempted titles like What God Hates, How to Give Horrible Advice, A Case Study and What Not to Say to the Suffering. Um, So we'll see. But it's serious stuff too, of course, because uh, it's God's word. And and Job's friend here, Eliphaz in particular, in Job 22, is just tearing him apart. Um, Whereas Eliphaz started uh, in... Right after Job opens up with his complaint to God and just, man, I wish I'd never been born, Eliphaz starts the rejoinder that the friends carry on through the rest of the book. And he starts pretty lightly. But by this point in the middle of the book, he's just had enough and he accuses Job of everything under the sun um, falsely. And so he's really really gotten nasty. He's really taken the gloves off. But we're going to sort of bounce around a bit. 22 is where we're going to finish, where we're going to land. But chapters 5... Eight, and then we'll finish in twenty-two. So if you have your Bible open, great. If not, no worries. Um, a little bit of context before jumping into to the friends and what they say. The friends. I, this just air quotes. I'm not going to do air quotes every time, but they are friends of Job, but they they really rake him over the coals. So they don't they don't act like friends at all. Um, but a little context before we jump into that. Um, the book of Job is. It's part of the wisdom literature of the Bible, and it's sort of a counterweight to, as Ecclesiastes would be, I think, to your proverbial ancient Near Eastern and biblical wisdom, like the book of Proverbs, for instance. Honor God, and he will honor you and give you wealth in a long life. Um, curse God, and, and you'll pay for it, you know, in this life sort of thing. Um, and there's more to Proverbs than that. There's, it's, it's more nuanced than that. But um, Job is a sort of counterweight, where we see this man, the book opens up where it basically says Job lived in the land of Uz and he was godly, the most godly person really on the face of the earth. He was a righteous man and he, he wasn't just, it says basically that he was perfect or whole or complete and that doesn't mean that he was sinless because what we're told next is that he he offers sacrifices on a regular basis for himself and his family, which means that he understood that something innocent had to die in his place if he was going to keep on living in favor with God, he understood atonement. He understood that he was a sinner, and that's part of why he was righteous, because he, he didn't see God as a tit-for-tat God. I, I do good, and then you owe me a good life. That's not the way Job understood that he was a sinner, and that's one of the reasons that God was pleased with him. But he was a righteous man, and, and God had rewarded him with ama- and blessed him with amazing wealth, tons of kids, which are the, one of the best kinds of wealth, and presumably a happy marriage, And then uh, Satan comes before God and says, hey, Job just loves you because you've given him all this stuff. Let's test him. And God says, he's in your hands. Just keep him alive. And so Satan just takes everything from him, including his kids all in one day. Ten kids dead all in one day. And so the rest of the book is basically Job crying out to God and our looking and then his friends sort of answering him and our looking at Job and saying, is is he going to crack is he going to hold to God or is he going to curse God and die? That's one of the main questions of the book. And there are other bigger questions too, um, like is God just in an unjust world, things like that, things that theologians would refer to as theodicy. But the focus is really on this man, Job. So that's, that's the book that we jump into. Um, but really, as I said, this morning we're just going to take a look at the Friends and then get back to Job in the following weeks. So I want you to listen to these words. These words greatly displeased God, the ones I'm about to read to you. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. And then behold, God will not reject a blameless man. Now, here are these words. These words greatly please God. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Let the day perish on which I was born. And why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Man who is born of woman is few days and full of trouble. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger, God, and your wrath according to the fear of you? And then this words that please God. Surely God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company and he has shriveled me up. Now, I'm trying to mix things up a little bit this morning because the first set of words are spoken by men and they sounded great, didn't they? They sounded like things that I've said many times that we hear in church a lot and they're all true within the right context. But that first set of words were spoken by men with whom God was extremely angry by the end of this book. Those are all words uttered by the friends. And at the end of the book in chapter 42, we'll get there at the last sermon, God says his his verdict on the words of the friends is, you spoke folly. You didn't speak of me what was true. And Job's going to have to pray for you if you want to get right with me. And yet the second set of words that really sound like things that we don't often talk about in church, the opposite of, hey, just grin and bear it, put on a happy face, it's going to be okay, buck up, buddy, God's sovereign. He's good. You're going to get through this. Um, Those were spoken by three of the most godly and humble men in the Bible, Moses, David, and Job, and even our Lord. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke says this. He says, Job's bitter experience at God's hand forces him to bray like a starving donkey. I just wanted that phrase in there and that image in your head for the rest of the day. What a great, I mean, that's so well put. God's hand on Job forces him to bray like a starving donkey against God and his friends. But surprisingly and refreshingly, God gives his stamp of approval to this kind of donkey braying, to this kind of crying out in honesty and in pain to him, not turning from him, but continuing to pray push into him in the midst of pain, not cursing him. But he he absolutely does not put his stamp of approval. He does the opposite. He shuns um, the sort of moralizing that the friends do. Uh, Here are some examples Waltke gives. Um, like They confront suffering with stoicism, which says, hey, grin and bear it, or with denial, which says all is well, or with false optimism, which says, I will be happy, I will be happy. And the scary thing is our words, and I, and I hope, and I speak from my own heart here, my words, but I think I can say our words often sound in the church more like the counsel of Job's friends and less like Job's contentions or braying against God. This is scary for obvious reasons. I don't, I don't want to be in the camp of Job's friends, giving this, quote, godly counsel that God in the end shuns and says, you haven't spoken to me rightly. I want to be, I don't want to suffer like Job did. I'm not a masochist. None of us should desire that. But I do want to be found true. And when the testing comes, when the suffering comes, I want to push in and I want to be honest. And I want, I want that to start now, not just when the suffering comes. And that's what Job is. Um, It's scary because, as I've said at the end of the book, God vindicates Job and condemns Job's friends. And I won't read it, but in Job 42, verses 7 and 8, that's exactly what he does, if you want to go there later. The bottom line is this. God prefers, get this, God prefers honest prayers, honest cries to him, to pious-sounding platitudes. About him every time, so God prefers honest prayers to Him over pious-sounding platitudes about Him every single time. I think that's one of the things we can safely take from this pastiche of of texts. Um, let's take a let's take a look at the the things, some of the things that Job's friends say, and how closely their counsel resemble, resembles ours, and to the degree that we need to repent uh, and look to Job and look. Through Job to Jesus, then let's let's do that. Um, if you look at, if you have your Bible, you don't have to turn there, but you can. It, um, Bildad starts speaking in. Uh, excuse me, I think it's Eliphaz in chapter five. Start in chapter five and, and look at a couple things he says. Um, chapter five of Job, verse nineteen. Eliphaz says this. This Eliphaz is the same guy that we have that we look at this morning in twenty-two that, that Jeremiah read. Um, But here he's starting, he's starting a lot easier on Job, man. He's just starting in. In in 519, he says, he will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. And it goes on like this through the end of the chapter, through the end of chapter five, all the way through verse 27. Um, This is Eliphaz, and, and he's read his Bible. He sounds a lot like big swaths. Of the scripture of God's word. Uh, for instance, Psalm 91, a wonderful psalm with rich promises that many have treasured and clung to and applied in times of trouble. I have. Uh, psalm 91 1. Listen for the resonances to what um, Eliphaz just said. Psalm 91 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Verse 3, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. Verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Now what follows in Psalm 91 sounds even more like Eliphaz's advice. Verse 9, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So this is a wonderful promise of God, but it's not always to be applied. It doesn't always hold true. Um, It can be taken out of context and misapplied, as can really any scripture. Um, It sounds a lot like Eliphaz. It also sounds a lot like a guy named Hasatan, or Satan. He actually uses this very text, as some of you will already know, in the desert to tempt our Lord, uh, to tempt Jesus Christ himself, and saying, look, God's going to take care of you. Just go jump off that temple mount and see. He won't, he, he won't even let your foot strike against a stone because you're righteous, right? Prove it. And, God, and Jesus comes, he says no, and he comes against, against him with another scripture. It's not, it's not right to apply that that promise in this way right now. Right truth wrongly applied equals disaster. Um, when this textbook approach becomes our our only approach, we put ourselves in a position um, whereby we would have been among the, ha- the headwaggers who ridiculed or at least gave counsel to um, uh, the very Son of God as he... Uh, hung upon the cross. So those that stood before Jesus and said, hey, if you're, if you're the son of God, if you're so righteous, why don't you come down? God wouldn't let this happen to his own. Um, that kind of thinking is, is the sort of thinking that, um, that ridiculed our, our own Lord. And so we don't want to be in that company. You know, ever since Abel in Genesis 4, the innocent have suffered. To a large degree, Job, and to an infinite degree, Jesus, they dignify suffering, and they show that it can be a badge of honor and something that God uses to make us lovely and to make us like him. Um, so, if you didn't get, and I don't know that I even said it, the first platitude, I'm just going to give you a series of platitudes that the, the friends say, I think I might have skipped this. The first platitude, what I just explained, Um, give me grace here. I'm still jet lagged this morning. Platitude one, God will keep the righteous from harm. Okay. That's, I probably, I think I skipped that headline. That was the headline for that sort of unpacking. Platitude one is, Hey, God will keep the righteous from harm. Okay. Yes, but not always. Okay. I want to give you the second platitude here that we hear from the friends. This is a favorite of the Presbyterians and I can knock on them because I'm one of them. I grew up in the Presbyterian church. So, so, uh, I have rights. Uh, this is a favorite of of a Presbyterian given to a friend who's suffering. God is sovereign, dear friend. He will work it out for good. Nothing wrong with that. It's true. It's absolutely true. But again, timing, context. Um, This is sort of one of the things that Job hears over and over again. Um, Eliphaz offers this advice in 517 and following. It's true, but it's just not always the best thing to say. Timing is key. Um, it's so easy to say this when you're not suffering to someone who's suffering, so that we should, we should let that check us right there. Um, better to heed Jesus' advice when he starts his sermon on the Mount and he gives the beatitudes, and what does he say? He says, "Blessed uh, well, excuse me. He says, "Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted." But what I'm thinking of is James, J- Jesus' half-brother, who says, um, "Mourn with those who mourn." mourn with those who mourn. Um, we'll talk about this toward the end of the sermon, but Eliphaz, Eliphaz and, his, and his three buddies, Job's friends, they started off mourning well. They started off following that counsel. They started off mourning with Job for seven days and seven nights. They just, they stripped down, they put ashes on their heads. Um, they sat there in silence and they mourned with their friend. And that's, they were doing great but then they came off the rails when they started talking. Um, So 517, Eliphaz says, behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Textbook, right? For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Great advice. Um, A variation on this theme is, hey, cheer up. God's discipline means that he loves you. I mean, we have a whole chapter in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, to that effect. This is a good thing in the long run. Again, there is a time to share this, but it's probably not when your friend is in the depths of despair, Um, right in the nadir of life, right in the pit that God has placed him in for whatever reason. Might be, might be, but again, this is what we hear from God. one of job's friends, and at the end of the book we're told guys you didn't you didn't speak of me what was right so um, but but again, there are resonances with scripture, like in the proverbs blows blows that wound uh, cleanse away evil so this is scriptural, it's true, but the timing is is off, and the spirit in which it is shared perhaps um, principle here perhaps bad timing can make a baseball bat of truth by which we can just Unknowingly, perhaps, smash the bones of those who are suffering right in front of us. So, in trying to help, we, we're hurting. Um, it's like somebody that just excels in cheering marathoners on; like they just, they're just so good at it. Giving cups of water, bullhorn, got a stentorian voice coming in to wake you up at five thirty in the morning. Um, man, you've got a gift, but it's not here and it's not now. Um. Learn from Eliphaz. Don't do this. Better sometimes just to keep our mouths shut and mourn with those who mourn. Um, Like I said, at the end of chapter two, we see Eliphaz and his friends do this really well. Um, But then when they open their mouths, everything goes downhill. I, I can so relate to that. I did fine until I started talking. Um, you know, we lost a child in 2009, Robin, right at the end of my our time in seminary up in North Carolina, and um, named her Tristan. And when we lost Tristan, we had so much encouragement from our church up there. We got closer to our church at that time of loss than than we ever had. And the people that encouraged us the most were those that they would show up, They did not show up. They didn't act like nothing was wrong. There was something wrong. We wanted them to acknowledge that. And so they showed up. They hugged. They always dropped off food, which is always good. Food is love. And cried with us and just said, if anything, I'm really, really sorry. That's about all someone that's suffering needs to hear when they're right in the middle of it, and they need you to be there, as Jeremiah said earlier, as their body, as the body of Christ, as the hands and feet of Christ, and just to be with them and to mourn with them. And so, Job's friends did that, and they did it well. And then they started talking. During that time of our loss, one of the uh, one of the verses that became really dear to us was, I believe, at the start of Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians one, three, and four. That talks about how um, it's a prayer that Paul's praying at the beginning of his letter, and he says, May um, the God of all comfort comfort you as you suffer, so that you might comfort others when they suffer. And the idea there being that the comfort that we were receiving, we realized, was God's comfort through those people. And those that comforted us most had, usually, they had lost children themselves. And so, God had done something to them. He had comforted them himself and then was passing on. They were passing on. They were conduits of God's love and comfort to us. And then we, in turn, were able have been able since then to comfort others who have lost children and, and to better sit with those who suffer. And I know that all of you have something similar that you can relate to. But um, So again, God prefers honest prayers um, to pious-sounding platitudes about him. So honest prayers to him. To pious-sounding platitudes about him. Um, every autumn, Robin and I like to try and watch a, a movie called You've Got Mail. It's an oldie. It's like a 90s, yeah, with uh, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. How many movies have they been in together? Like five? It's always good, though. Always makes me cry. Robin's stone and I'm sitting there bawling like a little child. Sitting behind her, like, just kidding. <clears throat> Every autumn we like to watch watch that movie, and there's this there's this point where Tom Hanks is talking about. They're emailing, you know, and uh, Tom Hanks is this is before they before they've met, and he's like, "Yes, I know exactly." Because she's just zinged somebody or said, "Man, I wish I had a zinger." I, I I thought about it later, and some guy came and said something so rude to me, and ended up it was Tom Hanks. He didn't know it at the time, and I just didn't have what I. I came an hour later; it was too late. He's like, "Man, I don't know if I, would I don't know if I'd wish that upon you." Because I that I get like the zing, the zinger comes to me immediately, and I always let it fly. And he says, "Here comes Mr. Nasty," that's what that's what he says. And uh, watch out, you know, here comes Mr. Nasty, and of course I can super relate to that. But that's really if, as we kind of look move to chapter eight and look at some of the things that Bildad says to Job. Um, that's this little, I just thought, here comes Mr. Nasty. You know, I mean, um, that's, that's all I could think of. <laughs> it, it just gets worse. And that's one of the things, there's a progression. These friends start kind of nice, and then they just take the gloves off. And, and at this point, we, we see Mr. Nasty. Um, verse 2 of chapter 8, Bildag basically says, Job, you're a windbag, shut your mouth. There's this line in, I think it's Happy Gilmore, where he says, you know, I know where you're going and I don't like it, so why don't you stick your foot in your mouth before I... He says, so why don't you shut your mouth before I stick my foot in it? (laughs) It's like, that's basically what Bildad's saying here. I never thought I'd quote Happy Gilmore in a sermon. There it is. I need grace from you. I'm jet-lagged. I need grace. Job, your windbag, shut your mouth, verse 2 of of chapter 8. Platitude number 3, if you're writing these down, um, verse 3 that says, does God pervert justice? In other words, everything that happens, Job, everything that happens is right. Now, again, part of what's so hard about reading the friends and reading this book and rightly understanding it is that so much of what they say is true. But this is a very dangerous and a very naive thing to say, especially in the midst of deep, deep suffering like Job has in and let's remember, he, it's not just physical suffering. It's not just that he lost his wealth. He lost his, all of his children at once. I don't know if there's anything worse in this life. Um, what he's really saying is people get what they deserve, and goes on to say that very thing to Job. Think about this in relation to the Holocaust, or closer to home, to folks in recent days getting shot in the street or closer to home still to, to a married couple that's lost a child. Um, devastating and it's really standing in the place of God. Um, these things um, are evils that God hates. They're not from Him. They're from their father, the devil. And yet God orders them and even appoints them, as we talked about week one, for the good of His children. But we don't necessarily need to... Um, work all that out in front of somebody that's in the pit. We can wait on that bit, but we know that. We cling to that. That is true, and sometimes that is appropriate to hold in front of somebody with good hope, but not bashing their bones with the bad of truth like Bildad does here, um, and what he says isn't right anyway. Verse 4, this is the worst yet. He says, essentially, translation, your 10 kids got what they deserved. Gloves are off. Um this comes from, I think, the main mistake that the, if we could just sort of boil down and reduce the main error that the friends make in their theology, and of course our theology leads to living a certain way and speaking a certain way in what they say, is their view that there's a distributive justice, tit-for-tat theology, that the good, basically the good get good and the bad get bad in this life. That's basically what they put forward, and that's what Bildad is saying here, he, that's his worldview, and so when he, he lets his worldview lead everything, and our worldviews do, but rather than letting the particulars of Job's situation and what he knows of Job and what Job's saying and what he knows of God blend to help him to understand reality, he has his worldview, and it leads him into some egregious errors. And um, when he sees Job lose all this stuff, his, because of his worldview, his only conclusion can be, well, you're bad. You have, to, you have to be hiding. Terrible. Your, your kids deserve this. You deserve this. It's the only thing his worldview leads to, you see. Um, again, like I said, this all sounds quite biblical, Bildad's advice and the advice of the others. I'll, I'll give just three examples from the Proverbs. Proverbs nineteen twenty one: the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Proverbs 22, 4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life, and then Proverbs twenty two sixteen. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth, or gives to the rich, will only come to poverty. We might think and hope and pray that we would never say something like what Bildad says to Job, to our friends who are suffering, or to anyone that we know that's suffering. And I hope that we're right about that, and I'm sure we are. But um, I just want you to see how Bildad and his friends they they slip into, um, well. They say things that sound very right and that sound a lot like what we say uh, as, as believers. And oftentimes it's true, but sometimes it can be misapplied and do a lot of damage. But look how Bildad slips in from that nasty, from Mr. Nasty, your kids got what they deserved in verse 4 to verse 5, into this smooth churchy talk. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you. And restore your rightful habitation. Um, one commentator paraphrases it this way: He says, Bildad's saying that Job ought to supplicate God contritely, rather than asserting claims against God, like Job does for the entire book." But the funny thing is that the in the hard thing is at the end of the book, God says, "No, I prefer Job asserting claims against me." Although Job does get taken to the woodshed, we will have a sermon, sermon seven on. Job getting taken to the woodshed. Chapters 38 through 41, God just goes off. But still at the end, he says, I prefer Job's honesty about me. It's solid. It's true to your, to the friend's platitudes. They're not, they're not right. They're not solid. They're not substantial. That's not how the universe works. It's too simplistic. And the way that you took this like a bat against my righteous friend, Job, I hate. I hate it. So, what Bildad says sounds nice, but it's dead wrong. Um, God applauds Job for asserting claims against God, for arguing with him vehemently, relentlessly, honestly, and for maintaining his integrity and his honesty before God in the face of all the evidence that's stacked against him, both his suffering and his friend's words. Um, and conversely, God condemns the pious friends. Um, So I think the friends, they read their Proverbs or parts of their Proverbs, but they left out the book of Ecclesiastes. They forgot about that book. And of course, this book was being written. And so we have Job as well to remind us that things aren't so simple. And thank God we do. Um, Because life is more than just proverbial wisdom, isn't it? Life is Proverbs. That's how things often work. That's why we call them proverbial wisdom. Um, But they don't always work that way. We have the book of Job, we have the book of Ecclesiastes, we have our Lord, to whom all of God's perfect word points, he is the perfect word, and he is the ultimate validation of our suffering, and the ultimate, and even if we're suffering because of sin, Jesus is suffering as the sinless one, can redeem that, because God, what Romans Eight, verse 28 and following, works all things for the good, all things for those. That includes your sin and evil. doesn't give you a license to sin. Earlier in Romans, Paul says by no means should the grace and the forgiveness of Christ and the mercy of God lead you to think you can do what you want. No way. But don't despair, friend. God will even use your sin and the evil of the world for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So remember, God prefers honest prayers to him to pious sounding platitudes about him. He wants us, he wants us like Job to cry out to him in honesty. Um, Job, the thing about Job, I think, I, I don't have all the answers or even very many to this book. I don't know that this book's about getting answers as much as being changed. I know that's what happened to Job. He didn't get an answer. So obviously, the book's not about, here's the answer to your suffering. One of the things that we talked about week one is that there is an answer, and that should be encouragement enough. But also, Job wasn't suffering because of his sin. Um, he couldn't see that, but he clung to that. But one of the things about Job, I think, that is so noteworthy is that he never turns from God in all of his suffering. He, he knows that God is his only refuge. Even the one, even his attacker is his redeemer. Even his attacker and he perceives God as his attacker. Of course, it's Satan. But it has come through God's hand. God has allowed it for whatever reason. Yes, to, to cleanse, to test Job, I'm sure. To give us this beautiful, weighty, sublime book that we can benefit from, especially when we're being attacked and suffering. But Job never turns from God. He never curses God. He knows that, as the psalmist said, Whom have I in heaven or on earth besides you, O Lord? And who showcases that attitude, that belief, more than our Lord Jesus Christ? Who at the very moment that he's crying out to his Father, Why have you forsaken me? On the cross, the next moment says... Into your hands I commit my spirit. In other words, I trust you. I trust no one else. My, I am only safe as I depart from this life. I am only safe with you. God is to be trusted. Even when things don't make sense. And the last bit of our text this morning, the, the, text, that, the text that Jeremiah read, um, gleaning another truth, another platitude from that, We look at verses 1 through 3, Eliphaz is really revealing a sort of impersonal view of God. He's way up there, we're way down here. He's huge, we're tiny. Do ants matter to you? No, they're tiny, they're way down there. We can crush them with a finger, with a foot. In the same way, why should we matter to God, basically, is what he's saying. Um, It's this size thing. God's big, we're small, we can't matter to him. Um, so, one platitude that's wrong. In essence, we don't matter much to God. Um, dead wrong. And that flies in the face of all of Scripture, of everything that's revealed to us, really. Um, God cares. On the contrary, God cares about little things. And we, I think my first sermon ever back in October 11th to this church was based on the text in Zechariah 3 that says that very thing. Don't despise the day of small things, because God, by His Holy Spirit, loves the small things and He works through the small things. He works, I mean, all of us came, we're single-celled zygotes. Every tree was an acorn or a seed. God Himself became small, the ultimate validation of God's care for little things. God Himself became small. So, God cares about little things, there's this great, just by way of reference, um, can't refer to it now, other than telling you the title. But "No Little People, No Little Places" by Francis Schaeffer, a great 20th century Christian apologist and thinker. Um, no little people, great sermon. You can; it's a free PDF online. He he talks about how God cares about small things, and he he basically spends the first part of the sermon on the rod of Moses. Um, he's like, God can use a stick. God cares about a stick. He used a stick to do all these amazing things to basically defeat the world's superpower. If he can use a stick, man, maybe he can use me. He cares about little things. Um, we can please God just as a child can please his father and mother, contrary to what Eliphaz says here, because God loves us, and he, and he made us for him to please him. That's the whole point of life. Um it's the opposite of religion. Eliphaz is stuck in this sort of God's great, we're small, he's given us a list of things to do. If we do them, we're blessed, and if we don't do them, we're cursed. But God made us for relationship, and he set about, when we broke that relationship, he set about to restore it at the ultimate cost to himself. All of life, Eliphaz misses. He betrays this misunderstanding. It's not religion, it's relationship with the living God. And as Augustine said, oh Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our souls are restless until they rest in you. Anyone, if you're restless right now, it's because you're missing some part of that truth. If, if those that you're around, if they're searching, if they're restless, if they're voraciously consuming things in life, one after the other after the other, it's because they're missing this truth. God made us for himself, and nothing's going to satisfy us. Nothing is going to satisfy us until we're satisfied in him. And then guess what? We can just enjoy the little things that God brings. Um, And, you know, believing what Eliphaz does here about sort of a, a religious way of looking at life, it's about doing certain things and not doing certain things as opposed to a relationship that God has brought us into through the mercy of Christ and laying his life down for us and drawing us up into himself as we trust in him Um, and just enjoying God in everything that we do, just about enjoying him and being in his presence and walking and talking with him, getting to know him and having him speak through us and act through us. And man, how much are we going to enjoy heaven if we don't get that that's what life's about now is knowing God and loving him? If heaven heaven is all about God and his presence, if we get there and we don't already enjoy him, it's not gonna be much fun. It's just about doing certain things and not doing certain things. We've missed the boat. But living a religious life either makes you very proud because you feel like you're keeping the rules, and where you just disdain those who are not, or it make it shatters you because you feel like I I've I I haven't done it. I haven't kept the rules. And what is there? A, is there a way to make up for that in a in a religious system? There's no redemption. There's no forgiveness. There's just if I've done wrong, then what is there? You know, um, a mirror can only show me the imperfections. It can't. it can't heal them. You can't cleanse them. Um. I mean, on the contrary, and perhaps I'll close here, cutting out a lot, but that's okay. I don't think anybody's going to be too upset about that. Um, By contrast, the true religion, God's revelation in Jesus Christ that reveals that we are made for relationship and Christ came to bring us back into that relationship that was severed as our first parents rebelled against God. And broke his word and broke broke relationship with him, and we're born into that. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came and we deserving death, we deserving hell, we deserving the just punishment of God for the way that we've lived, the way that the things that I've thought, the things that I've done, and the things that I've left undone. I deserve God can't, as we sang earlier, he can't even he can't abide with sin at all. He's holy. He's perfect and pure. And if he were to let sin and evil remain, what kind of God would he be? What kind, of, what kind of world would this be if he just let that go on forever? That's bad. It's really bad news. It's good news that God is that way, but it's bad news for me. And the gospel is that Christ made a way for us. As, as God himself, as the Son of God, he was born as a child and grew up to be a man to represent all of us who would trust in him to live the life that we can't live, the life of perfect obedience from the heart to the Father, of perfect enjoyment, and then was crushed like a sinner. Our sins put upon Him and took the punishment we deserve for us. So He made payment for us on that cross, satisfied the wrath of God, and then rose from the dead to new life. And as we trust in Him, we die to our sin, we're forgiven of our sin, and we rise to new life in Him. We live in a newness of life that is no longer subject to the law, it's no longer subject to the wrath of God, it's been taken care of. When we get that, rather than be either being proud or shattered with no hope of or repair, it humbles us, number one. Rather than being proud, we're humbled because who am I? I didn't deserve a single thing. God chose to shower his favor upon me in Christ through what Jesus has done, not through what I've done. It humbles us to the dust, as Keller says, and at the same time, it lifts us to the stars. It fills me with a sense, I am that loved. Not only am I that worthy of punishment as I look at the cross, I'm that loved. I'm that loved. So it humbles us to the dust and it lifts us to the stars. Um, Closing, I just want to kind of take a step back and just look, before we jump back next week, into... Sort of the railings of Job. His dealing with the situation that he is in. Never turning from God, but saying some really uncomfortable things to God. As we, before we turn back to that, just taking a step back as we close and looking at the trajectory so far up through really chapter 22, through the midpoint of the book, of Job's friends and what they've been saying, and then of Job. Look at the trajectory of his friends they begin, as I've said a few times, somewhat encouragingly, softly admonishing Job, hey, God's disciplining you because he loves you and wants that sin out of your life, brother. And they end by calling him the worst of all sinners, deserving everything that's come upon him, and hey, your kids deserve to die. No evidence for that. Lots of counter evidence for that based on the way Job had lived and what he was saying about his own life now. None of it was true. But, their worldview drove them to that conclusion. That trajectory, look at that trajectory versus the Job's trajectory. When the first round of dialogue began, Job rejected life by its conclusion. So as we go through the book, we, we see Job kind of turns a corner. He begins clinging to life and longing for renewed intimacy with God. Next week, we're going to look at that amazing chapter, chapter 19, where Job says, I can't explain it, but I know it. My Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will take his stand on this earth, and I will see him face to face. And you know what? Things stink now, but that means they're going to be okay. Which, uh, let, me, let, me just, let me just read this. It's a quote, when the first round of dialogue began, Job rejected life. By its conclusion, he's clinging to it and longing for a intimacy with God. Lamentation, anger, despair, and hope. How many of those things fill your prayer life? And I want to say, if they don't, your prayers aren't honest enough. They aren't really taking your life and putting it before God. That's, they, these ingredients need to be in our songs. They need to be in our prayers. They need to be in our conversation all the while clinging to God, all the while looking to God, all the while pointing each other to God. Okay? Lamentation, anger, despair, and hope succeed each other in waves, but a clear gathering of energy is visible in his speeches. And I just want to say, what trajectory do you want to follow? Job starts out kind of Mr. Nasty. In chapter three, he starts off by just cursing the day of his birth and saying, it'd be better if I hadn't been born. Why'd you do this to me, God? But always taking it to God. And by the end, he's really something has happened in him. Things things are changing, and God vindicates him. And the friends, by contrast, end up going they start soft, but they end up Mr. Nasty, all of them. And they end up completely denounced by God. I want to be more like Job. I don't want to, be, I want to be less like his friends because I identify more with them, to be honest, than I do with his friends. But God, would you make us more like Job? Not would you bring Job and suffering on us. I'm not asking for that. That would be foolish. But when it comes and when life is good, would you, would you help us to be honest? Would you help us to know that you are our only refuge and strength? Would you help us to know that you're good even if we can't see how in these circumstances, Lord? Um, because of Job, but ultimately because of Jesus. God prefers prayers to him, honest prayers to him, to pious sounding platitudes about him. Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the book of Job. I thank you that Job was real and that that we have this amazing chronicle of his life and his loss in his wrestling and the horrible counsel of his friends. Forgive me for being like them and for sounding like them often. Lord, would you make us more like Job? Would you make us more like Jesus Christ? Would you help help us to stop striving and to start resting in his finished work and in, in you as we look to him? Um, we we love you. We, we thank you that Jesus makes sense of suffering and that at the very least, he reminds us that you are with us and that we're not necessarily suffering because of something we've done um, and that you love us because you've given us yourself and your son and you were pleased to crush him to make us whole. And so in Jesus' name, we, we approach these weighty truths. In Jesus' name, we... Worship you together, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.